was thinking about this, this concept this past week of, of comedic injury. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's funny to watch people fall or to get hit in the face with a ball. I, I'm not really sure why that is, but I know that it's true. It's a staple of comedy. Um, one of the greatest examples of this, I think, uh, as I think about this, is the movie from uh, years ago, Home Alone. If you're not familiar with Home Alone, I'll just sort of explain to you quickly uh, what the, the, the film is about. It's about a young kid, uh, Kevin, who gets left in his house by himself when all the rest of his family goes away on a Christmas vacation. I know. It seems sort of unlikely, but it's a really big, chaotic family. Uh, you know, you have, maybe you have to suspend a little disbelief. And he gets left by himself. And while he's there by himself, a couple of burglars try to break into the house. They know that the family is to be gone, and so they're trying to break into the house. Only little Kevin is in the house. And part of what he does is he sets a, a series of traps, booby traps for these guys to come in. And so all sorts of things happen to these guys to great comedic effect. It's incredible. Things like irons, you know, like a, a clothes iron that you would iron your clothes with, dropping on their face from a couple stories up. That's a riot, right? <laughs> Cans of paint swinging from a second story by a rope and knocking them backwards. It's hysterical. And what's interesting about it is that if you really think deeply about what's happening, it really wouldn't be funny in real life. <laughs> in fact, years ago, uh, an emergency room physician wrote a little article about what, what traumatic injuries would probably result from many of these things, and a lot of them are really, really serious. But we understand, in a comedy movie like that, this is you know, there's kind of a fine line. And, and part of what makes it work is that the people receiving these injuries, uh, they're usually kind of despicable, you know, they, they've usually been sort of bad guys. And so watching them get their comeuppance is just funny. This physical comedy plays out really well. What's interesting is that kids get this at a very early age. A child psychologist will tell you that by 24 months, kids get this. They get that it's funny when people get hit or when they fall down. Isn't that weird? Like, we don't even have to teach them. Uh, we were just in Michigan and had an opportunity to play with our sweet, our sweet granddaughter, who will be two years old in one month. And she gets it. Like when you do the thing, when, when she pushes you over and you fall over, it's a riot to her. Or if you set up some toys and then she gets to knock them over, it's hysterical. Nobody taught her that. I mean, she just sort of gets it. There's this German word, that explains this concept. I love this word, schadenfreude. If any of you speak German and want to correct my pronunciation, I'll talk to you afterwards. Uh, my email address is jonathan at bereanspokane.org. <laughs> you can direct all your emails there. But I love this word, schadenfreude, which is sort of the concept of taking delight in someone else's misery. Now, What's interesting about it is we use it frequently comedically, you know, in, in, in funny ways, funny movies, funny stories. Uh, it's, it's really common. But this idea behind this German word schadenfreude is even broader than that. It isn't just for comedy. 
it isn't just for things like that. It is used for people who, who take delight in other people's misery in sort of a less funny way even. And again, psychologists will tell you that the Germans have a word for it because it's this thing that happens, not just in Germany, but sort of amongst people. And we get to take a look at a little bit of that today. I want to ask you if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Jonah. We've had a short study as we're winding down the summer here of the book of Jonah. And this morning we're in Jonah chapter 4. And just to bring you up to speed, to remind you, we're told at the beginning of this story that Jonah gets sent by God to go to a city called Nineveh. Nineveh was this great big city, very important city, a city that would later become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. At this specific point, it probably wasn't yet, but a very, very large city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were kind of natural enemies of the Israelites. And Jonah gets told, go to this city and warn them the judgment's coming. And it's interesting because we know, even from Assyrians' own records, that they had just this horrible, despicable history, um, brutal, awful torture of their enemies, just really wicked, gross things being done. You know, we think of the idolatry that took place there, but it was also just this really barbaric, torturous stuff that they were known for doing, and they celebrated even in their own art. And so these are the people. And God says, Jonah, go warn these people. And Jonah doesn't. Instead, he runs the other way. And so God sends this storm. And the men on the ship are terrified. Like, we don't know what's going on. There shouldn't be a storm here right now. They're trying to do everything they can do to save the ship. And finally, Jonah says, yeah, I think it might be me. Your best bet is to throw me overboard. You know, it doesn't even occur to him to say, maybe let's turn the ship around. Maybe, you know, let me get back to where God wanted me to go. He just says, nah, just throw me overboard, you know. So they throw him overboard. They're saved. Jonah's drowning. But then we're, we're told that God sends this great fish, the whale, you know, that we know from this story, who swallows Jonah. And he spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And he prays and he, he gives praise to God for having saved him from certain death, certain drowning, by sending this big fish. He seems to have some realignment of his heart And then this fish vomits Jonah out on the beach. And Jonah now says, okay, I'll go and I'll do it. And then last week with Pastor Mitch, we saw that Jonah does what he's supposed to do. He goes into Nineveh and he walks around the city and he proclaims this word of God. Judgment's coming. You're in trouble. God's going to punish you. And something really interesting happens. Something very unexpected to us who maybe who are reading this story. It certainly would have been unexpected to the Israelites the original Jews reading this story, which is that the Ninevites, these Assyrians, repent. Even from the highest level, the king himself takes on this this attitude of mourning and he commands all of his people, we got to mourn, we're in trouble, we got to turn this around. And so God, because he's merciful, withholds his judgment. He withholds his hand. He has this, you know, change of heart, if you will. And that's where we've left off. And so, in Jonah chapter 4, in verse 1, when it says, But it displeased 
Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That's what it's referring to, the end of the previous chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Again, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so we open this chapter now with Jonah being displeased about this and being really angry. Remember how I told you, I admitted to you, that I don't particularly like Jonah as a person? <laughs> Schadenfreude, right? He can't wait to see these people get it. And then when they don't, he's really angry. He's really bitter. Now, again, I mentioned this. I want to give Jonah a little bit of credit where perhaps credit is due. I believe in the chronology of how these things roll out, that, that Jonah happens after uh, the prophets of Joel and of Hosea, and in particular, Hosea the prophet, had told the nation of Israel that not only did they have judgment coming for their own wickedness, but that it was going to come at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. And so I think that Jonah already recognized, when God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to these people, Jonah says, why? That's the enemy. I mean, they're worse than we are. And it, now it's been prophesied that those are the people that are going to come and, and wipe us out. I don't want to do that. I mean, there's this baggage here. Nonetheless, it's kind of a horrific response, isn't it? He goes and he preaches this destruction that's going to come. And then when it doesn't happen, he gets angry. He's very displeased. And he prayed, in verse 2, to the Lord. And he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? <laughs> uh, this is new information for us, because if you remember from chapter 1, we weren't told about anything that Jonah said or thought or, or really what his motivation was, frankly. What we're told is God said, go preach this message, and then we're told that Jonah decided to get on a boat and do something different. But we're not given any account of Jonah saying anything. So here we get a new glimpse into what Jonah has, has been thinking. And he says, see God, it's just what I said. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. <clears throat> I, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we talked about this prayer that Jonah offers up from the belly of this fish that it's very psalmic. I mean, clearly, Jonah is, is a man who knows the scriptures pretty well, and he echoes a lot of that in that prayer. And this is the same thing. In fact, if you want to take at the, a look at the first mention of this, if you want to turn back to Deuteronomy with me, the fifth book of the Bible back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And the scene here is 
God making for the, the nation of Israel some new tablets. There was this whole bit, many of you I know remember, where they're camped at Mount Sinai, and Moses is the leader of the nation of Israel at the time, goes up and he receives these commandments from God. God makes them on these stone tablets. But then Moses comes down and he, he finds the whole nation involved in this horrible idolatry. While he's been up there receiving God's law, as God's special people, they're down there, they've turned their back on God, and they're worshiping this stupid idol that they've made out of a bunch of gold, you know, this cow. And he's angry. He smashes these tablets. Well, now God has said, okay, let me make you some new tablets. So in chapter 34, he said, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two, two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And verse 6 said, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Does this sound familiar? It's God who's merciful, who's gracious, who's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And this thought is used a variety of other times throughout the scriptures, including our psalm that was read this morning, Psalm 103. It's that exact same language. And now Jonah uses that same language. See, he knows this. He's familiar with this scripture. He's familiar with these accounts. <clears throat> but what's sad about it is his tone as he talks about this. See, typically, this is something that's very praiseworthy, right? When David wrote Psalm 103... It's a praise to God because he's all of these things. Because he's so rich in mercy and grace and slow to anger and abounding in love. Here, Moses hurls these things back at God almost as if they're some sort of insult. You see, God, I knew it. I knew this is what would happen. Here you are again all gracious and merciful and filled with love. I mean, you get a load of this guy? It's kind of rude, right? Schadenfreude. Or whatever the opposite of schadenfreude would be to, to, to derive misery from someone else's lack of misery, you know. He says, I knew it, God. I just knew it. 
This is what I said. This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I just knew this would happen. But he's bitter about it. He's angry about it. So much so that he says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What an attitude, right? Uh, Many years ago, I won't tell you how many years ago, I mean, it doesn't matter. I was about five years old. And my parents, I don't even remember what. They told me something that I didn't want to do or they said I couldn't do something I wanted to do. And I decided I was going to run away from home. But I never really decided I was going to run away from home. What I said was, I'm going to run away. And then I walked out of our yard without a suitcase, without any belongings, without, you know, I mean, at five years old, where was I going to go? I didn't know the first thing about running away or making my way in the world. What I really wanted was to sort of stick it to them, right? This pouty five-year-old attitude. But that's his attitude. Uh, See, I'm not convinced that he really wanted to die. I think he's sort of bluffing here. He said, why don't you just kill me, God? I'll just run away. I don't know. Maybe he did really legitimately want God to kill him. It's hard to know for sure. But this is what he expresses, this pouty, petulant, five-year-old, just kill me. What's even the point? You know, it's pointless now. And I love God's, frankly, really gentle and patient and long-suffering response here. The Lord said, verse 4, Do you do well to be angry, is what my translation says. Many of you have something more along the lines of it. This is the meaning of it. Do you have a right to be angry? Do you really, can we just think about this rationally, honestly? Do you think it's okay that you're angry? What's interesting is Jonah doesn't answer him. At least not that's recorded here. Instead, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. (laughs) Schadenfreude, right? Here he is. Do you see what's going on? God has now relented of this judgment, but Jonah, he's got his fingers crossed. He's like, maybe if I sit and watch, because these wicked Assyrians, they can't keep this up for long, right? I mean, they'll never do this. So maybe if I just sit here for a bit, I'll get to see some real fireworks. I I mean, I'm reading between the lines a little. But why else does he go and just sort of sit there and set up outside the city with a front row seat in a nice little view Just to watch. (laughs) That's what he does. And now God wants to try and instruct Jonah a bit. And I think part of the reason I I, I love this this chapter is because we really in this chapter get to hear from God. We really get to see God and God's voice and God's motivation 
in chapter 1, you know, we're really just told God commanded Jonah to do this thing. But then it's all this narrative about Jonah and the storm and the ship and the sea and the men, the sailors, you know. We get all that. In chapter 2, it's just Jonah's prayer. We get to hear Jonah's voice, but really not much else. In chapter 3, it's a narrative of what happens to the people of Nineveh. I mean, we really focus on, on this message, but then their response to the message. And we see God's response to that. But here now, we really get to hear God's heart. And I think what's interesting is, is Jonah chapter 4 is sometimes even forgotten about, even by people who know this story well. We sort of forget about this, this ending, which is unfortunate because I think it might be the most important take-home from the whole thing. And God now does something interesting in verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I don't know what sort of plant. Sometimes scholars and botanists and such people, you know, talk about what kind of plant it might be. There's some plants that can grow really fast. It, it, I don't, it doesn't really matter, though. Could it have been a castor bean plant? Sure, if that makes you happy. But, I, you know, I, I don't think this is just a natural growth, see? I think God causes this plant, even really fast-growing plants, they don't just spring up overnight Jack and the beanstalk style and provide all this shade. But God causes this thing to happen. And so here's this plant. And Jonah says, oh, a plant, how great. You know, he set up this booth, kind of a lean-to maybe of, of, of tree branches, you know, who knows what. And he set this up. And now here comes this vine that maybe sort of intertwines itself through it with nice big leaves. It just gives him this great shade. He's like, oh, this is great. Now I get to sit here and watch this in relative comfort, you know. But God's not done with this little object lesson yet. I know many of you know this story. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked, here again, it's the same expression, he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than live. Now he's really hot, he's faint. You know what that's like? I mean, sometimes even when you're out having fun in the sun, but you've spent a little bit too long in the sun with a little bit too little water, you know, and you start feeling kind of, whew, <laughs> a little dizzy, a little, little faint, kind of zapped by the heat and the, the sun. And, and even, you know, this, this description of this hot wind, you know, sometimes that hot wind can just like suck it out of you, you know. And so poor Jonah, now he's miserable. And he says again to God, it's just kill me. And God asks this same question but with a twist now, he asks him again, you really think you ought to be angry? But he makes it specifically about, <coughs> about the plant. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah, get a load of this guy. <laughs> he says, yes, I do. 
right? I mean, most of us understand when someone in authority, you know, especially when you're a kid and a parent says, do you think you're behaving well right now? We just understand the answer to that question is no. I understand what you're saying to me is, no, I'm behaving horribly. Jonah, to the God of the universe, in response to this question, do you really think it's okay for you to be mad about this plant? Jonah says, yes. Petulant five-year-old. <laughs> yes, I do. I do, with, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And now God wants to say some things. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. <clears throat> Jonah, can we just have a, a reality check, a perspective check here? You didn't even tend to this plant. I mean, it's not as if you're a gardener. You know, if you were a gardener and planted a seed and cared for it and watered it and weeded around the plant, took good care of it, and then a pest came and ate it, you know, that's one thing. But God is just pointing out, you didn't even, what's the big deal with the plant? You didn't even do anything about the plant. You didn't have anything to do with that. That just popped up overnight and then went away the next night. What are you so bitter about this plant for? Now, let's pause here for a minute. Is Jonah really upset about the plant itself? Does Jonah have a deep care for the plant? No, I, I don't think he does either. I mean, I, I hear you all answering, no, no, no. I don't think he does either. I mean, Jonah's point isn't so much that he cares so tenderly for the plant. What's Jonah care about? Jonah, right? That's what Jonah cares about. He's not really heartbroken because of this amazingly beautiful plant that he just cared for so tenderly. That's not what's going on. Jonah's just like, I had shade, now I don't have shade. And God says, you think that's right for you to be so angry about that plant that you didn't even cultivate? You had nothing to do with. And one of the things that God reminds Jonah about here is simply God's sovereignty. That God is sovereign over all of this. Jonah is acting as if he has some sort of right to this plant. As if he earned it somehow. And God just reminds him, you never earned it. I'm a sovereign God. I just gave you the plant. And then I took it away because I'm trying to teach you something, you dummy. Those are my words. not uh, You won't find you dummy in Scripture. And here you are pouting about this plant. And when pressed, Jonah even says, yeah, I do have a right to be angry. And so God says, well, let's just think about this. The thing that you're angry about is this thing that you never had anything to do with in the first place, this plant. And then in verse 11, he asks a really interesting question. And should not I pity Nineveh? 
in the scheme of things, what do you suppose is more important? This plant or a whole city filled with souls? And I think that's what God comes around to here. I think what this begins to become is is kind of a passage on the sanctity of life in God's eyes. And he says, don't I have a right, you think, to pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? (laughs) It's a really interesting description of this city. People have sort of debated what exactly this means. When he says 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, the obvious thing that many people think about is just children, you know? Like my two-year-old granddaughter. You know, she doesn't yet get right and left and, you know. But it's children. And so the 120,000 children is, is what God is pointing out, which means that the total population of the city could have been far higher than that. You know, maybe 600,000, some have said. Others have suggested, he may not be talking about children necessarily, but he may not be saying that the the total population of the city is 120,000 either. Maybe he's talking about adults, but who are so undisciplined and unspiritual that, that, you know, he's making this case that there are even adults there who are kind of so depraved, so immature that they don't, maybe it's a bit of hyperbole. It's hard to know. But let's just for sake of argument say that he is making a literal statement that the population of the city of Nineveh is 120,000 people, period. May I just suggest that that is still a lot of people? Is that okay? And it's interesting that God even throws in there and, and a bunch of cattle, too. Isn't that weird? <laughs> That, that could be a whole nother study. Why the cattle? Why does he mention the cattle? We won't go there. But God says, Jonah, time out. You're real angry about this plant. They, you didn't do, even do anything to produce. You just got to sit under it. Don't you think it makes sense that I might have concern for 120,000 souls that live in this giant city? Jonah, come on. That there is a, a, a sanctity to their lives. And what's interesting is Jonah is such a snapshot of the nation of Israel right here. Because it can be argued easily that one of God's purposes for the nation of Israel as his people, as his special chosen people, was that they would be his evangelists to the rest of the world. God has always said that he desired for all men to come to him. And his plan during this time of history was that the nation of Israel would be the, 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 the tools of that plan that they would be the channel through which the whole world would know about the one true God. And part of the reason that the prophets have continued to warn Israel is because they're not doing it. 
They don't care. They almost never did it in their history. What Israel continued to be concerned about was Israel. Was Israel's comfort, Israel's safety. They had this weird nationalism where there was just like all Israel all the time. And everybody else was outside and we don't care. And God continues to say, part of what I wanted you to do was to talk to those people about me. And Jonah is just a, a, a small picture of that. In a smaller sense, he's just done the exact same thing. Jonah cares about Jonah. He's worried about Jonah. <clears throat> and he even has this sense of schadenfreude, where he kind of can't wait to see them get it. Now, did they deserve judgment? Yes, God never would have promised them judgment if they didn't deserve it because he's a just God. He's not capricious. They were wicked. They were awful. And we sort of kind of, if we're being honest, can empathize with the sense of wanting them to see a, a just punishment. That's righteousness, right? Right? But the whole twist is then they listen, they repent, they say, oh, wow, we have to fix our behavior. And God in his mercy then withholds his hand. He relents. They do deserve judgment. That's the very picture of what God's grace and mercy is, that I deserve judgment. And he withheld my judgment. He gave it to Jesus Christ instead. Yeah. And he says, Jonah, what's going on here? I need to fix your perception. Unfortunately for us, who are curious people, the story for us ends right there. Very abruptly. We don't get to see. Does Jonah learn his lesson? We don't know. Maybe we'll never know. I like to think it's one of those things I might get to ask the Lord someday. Hey, whatever happened to Jonah? Like, did he come around? Did he just stay bitter? I'd love to know, wouldn't you? Here's what we do know from a historical perspective. That the Assyrian Empire does indeed conquer the Israelites. They are used as God's instrument to conquer the Israelites, just as God promised them. Again, very specifically in the book of Hosea. Hosea comes and he says, not only are you going to get it, you're going to get it from the Assyrian Empire. They'll be, you know, sort of my instrument. It happens. We also know that the Assyrian Empire uh, as Pastor Mitch pointed out last week, this repentance probably didn't stick because they themselves got punished later. God uses the Babylonian Empire to punish the Assyrians. And so in a grander sense, you know, we sort of know the end of this story. I guess I wish I knew a little bit more about Jonah. But I think what's even more important about this, again, all Scripture is God-breathed. 
It's given by inspiration of God. And as such, it is useful for us for our teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. This is good for us. And always with this, we don't want to just look at the simple facts. We want to know what's in here for us. How do we see us in this passage? And Pastor Mitch looked at that last week in this sense of who are the good guys and the bad guys, you know. This really ironic twist where, where the wicked people that are supposed to really get it, as it turns out, they repented. In fact, they do a thing that the Israelites had refused to do for generations. They actually repented. And they, they turned it around. Now, maybe that was short term. But still, it's a thing that we ought to be excited about. <coughs> As followers of God, we ought to be thrilled when we hear stories like that. But now we get to see things from God's perspective, from God's angle. And we get left with this very simple question. Do we have this sense of the magnitude, the magnitude of God's sovereignty, but also the magnitude of his love, his mercy, his grace, his long-suffering, slow to anger, and abounding in love. To what extent do we get that that is our God's heart? And that this, this has everything to do with the sanctity of life. You know, God reminds Jonah, what, what are you worried about this plant for? Do you understand how many souls are right there in that city, in the midst of those walls? Don't you care about that? Because I have news for you. I care about that, says God. He very plainly says, I care about that. Scripture says that the Lord is unwilling that any should perish. It would be very wrong-headed of us. And sometimes people even try to draw this weird distinction between, quote, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as if they're two different gods or that somewhere between the two God's personality switches or something. No, it doesn't. We have ample evidence in the Old Testament that God is a merciful and gracious God, that he's not willing that any should perish. It's not like he stands up, uh, wringing his hand saying, boy, I can't wait. It's not as if he's a God who is filled with schadenfreude, who just with glee watches people just suffer and <laughs> the way they had it coming. We're told time and time again that our God abounds in love, that he's slow to anger, far more patient with us than we ever deserve. And I think that can be part of the point of this, that I paint myself, ourselves, in the place of the Ninevites, 
that I recognize first, I'm the object of this abounding love. I'm the object of this slow to anger, the recipient of that, of this grace, of this mercy. Who do I think I am? We've talked about this before. When I sort of minimize my badness, I start teaching myself this, this lesson that, you know, I, did, I didn't even need salvation that much. I mean, I've seen way worse people than me. You start to internalize this message of, I mean, I kind of needed Jesus, but not as much as a lot of people. You know, a lot of people are really blessed. Me, I'm not that bad. Yeah, you are that bad. I am that bad. I'm Nineveh. You're Nineveh. But then I think beyond that, we are called to share God's heart, which is why I love that God just very explicitly shows us his heart in this passage. And I certainly don't think it's a mistake or an accident that we don't get to see it. You know, I told you, I'm curious about Jonah. I'd love to know what Jonah's response was. But I think God understands this story isn't about Jonah. Jonah's not the, the part of this story. I, I, I love a few weeks ago when, when Pastor Mitch said that this, this book could be called Despite Jonah. Jonah's there, but very little really happens because of Jonah. It all happens because of God. And God, in relaying to us this story that we now have, knows you don't need to worry about Jonah. Here's the part I want you to hear. This is what this is about. And as Jonah uses this almost as a pejorative, see, God, I knew it. I knew that you were filled with mercy and grace and slow to anger and abounding in love. I just knew it. And God, in essence, says, shouldn't I be? Shouldn't you be, Jonah? You really want to sit here on a hill and rub your hands together and watch the terrifying destruction of at least 120,000 souls? Because, Jonah, that's not my heart. That's not me. And it shouldn't be you either. And I think it's good for us to reflect and to consider whether or not we possess some schadenfreude about people. Maybe it's specific people. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's our culture or other cultures or, I mean, whatever it is, but the reality is, when we harbor in us this sense of schadenfreude, we do not echo God's heart. When we carry within us sort of a, a desire for, a glee about the misery of others, even when they deserve it, we are not accurately reflecting our God. And we are certainly not accurately reflecting our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who while we were still sinners came and died for us. Hallelujah. What a God. What a God. And it's because God had a higher view of me than he should have. I use that advisedly. I'm not suggesting that God did it wrong. But you understand what I mean, I think. I didn't merit God's love. I didn't earn God's favor. I didn't deserve God's grace and love. And he still gave it to me. Why? Because he didn't desire that Paul McDonald ought to be punished. He's just. Paul McDonald has a bunch of crud that needs to be dealt with. But because he didn't desire that I just be obliterated. He said, let me put Jesus there to take your punishment. And now how dare I sit and think, boy, I'm so sick of some of these other people. I'm just so fed up like a petulant five-year-old. You know, If I really want to reflect my God's heart. This is what it looks like. To pity Nineveh. To pity these souls. To be gracious. To be merciful. To be slow to anger. To be abounding in steadfast love. And to have a heart that wants to relent from disaster. If you see a little bit of Jonah in yourself, probably welcome to the human race. You know, again, kids start picking up on some of this stuff very early. Psychologists will tell us that. It's weird. <laughs> but there it is. It's almost like we are fallen people. Hmm? It's almost like we're busted. <laughs> it's almost like we are in need of saving. And praise God, praise be to Jesus, he did that saving. And now you and I stand in the place of the nation of Israel, or really specifically in the story in the place of Jonah, to go to our world, but not to go to our world and say, here's a message I have for you. I know you're probably going to reject it, and I can't wait to see what happens to you when you do. But to have this pity, to have this heart, to be slow to want to see this devastation happen, to have a love and almost a desperation to say, turn to the Lord. Please turn to the Lord. He loves you. I have this view of his sovereignty and this view of, of the sacredness of life itself. I really want you to, and if you say no, I'm going to pray that you get one more day and one more week. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep, because this is my heart. That's the heart we're to have. If you possess schadenfreude, while you're watching a comedy film, eh, it's okay, you know. We suspend an awful lot of disbelief in a case like that. 
But if you possess this schadenfreude, this glee that other people would get what's coming to them, I want to suggest to you that that does not belong in the heart of a follower of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because that does not exist in his heart. It's good for us to reflect and to constantly be asking ourselves, to what extent do I reflect my God who is filled with mercy and grace and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, not wanting to see anyone perish. I've been thinking a lot about that this week, and I hope you will too. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank you. God, we recognize in part that we are Nineveh, all of us, that we are all like sheep who have gone astray. Everyone has turned to their own way. That we are so needful of you, of rescue, of salvation, of deliverance. And I praise you, God, that you're the God who is slow to anger. God, to say you have more patience than I would have had I been put into your position is a vast understatement. You're so incredibly patient and long-suffering. And I love you for that. We are the recipients of that. But God, help us now to reflect your heart. To see in your heart this attitude, this pity for lost souls, this heartbreak over people who bear your image are living without you. God, we want to get this at least more right than sometimes we do. We know we're not God. I frequently say no one's like you. It's so true. And yet we are called to day by day be more and more like you, to be closer and closer. So God, convict our hearts. Show us where we have any way that ought not to be within us, that doesn't accurately reflect your heart for people, your heart for the lost, that we would not have schadenfreude about the world around us, but that we would have pity. Recognize that you are slow to anger and that you've called us to be your messengers. We thank you for this short book. We thank you for your word in general. We pray that it would just get down deep into our lives and affect us and change us and mold us into the people you've called us to be, God. We pray this in Christ's name.